there's something you need to know about me. I am not a good sufferer. I really just don't like suffering. My entire history is littered with these one-time attempts to rollerblade or to longboard because it just took one fall over a rock or one slide down a hill before I decided I was done and I'd sell it back to play it against sports and give up on it entirely. Which is what makes me really nervous when I come to passages of scripture like today's, which is all about how important suffering is and how it's necessary for Christians to experience suffering. Because there's something in me and there's something in each of us that really, really doesn't want to suffer. I'm sure when you look back on your life, there are also stories of times when you got injured just enough by the ropes of doom while doing double dutch, or your ankles got bit by a skippet, or you took a fall off a bike and it made you really reluctant to ever do it again. But I think we would also all agree that suffering it's not only physical. We've all experienced the suffering that comes from the grief of a loss or from broken friendships or from job losses or embarrassments at work or with the people that we love or that comes from being misunderstood or rumors being told about you or mistakes you've made. You see, a few months ago, I bought this brand new mixer and it comes with all these fancy features. And one of the fancy features and the reason why I wanted to buy it was that it has this dough setting where you can make bread or pizza dough right inside the exact same machine that you use to make hummus or smoothies. And so right away, I decided that I needed to use this fancy new mixer to make some homemade cinnamon rolls. But what I didn't realize at the time is that this mixer, it has two separate blade sets. One of them has these plastic ridges, which you can use to mix ingredients together without smashing them or chopping them up. And the other one is this precision sharpened metal blade that cuts through ice or can mince garlic or even make hummus. And what I didn't realize too, is that this mixer, it came preloaded with the metal pieces and you had to change them out before you started mixing with these plastic blades if you wanted to make something like bread. You can probably see where I'm going with this story because I discovered my mistake when I reached my hand in after my dough was mixed up to take it out and I was rewarded with some pretty nasty cut up fingers. This past week, I was using the mixer again to make dough, this time with the plastic blades. But then I realized as I was cleaning up the mixer afterwards, and as I was washing the blades, that even though these plastic blades couldn't hurt me at all, I was still being extra cautious as I cleaned it, making sure my fingers would never be cut again because my brain and my body, it remembered the pain from before and it didn't want to repeat it. You see, suffering shapes us. For better or worse, suffering shapes who we are. You see, I don't know of a single person who's experienced either physical or emotional or relational suffering, and they've said, I'm completely unaffected by it. In fact, it doesn't even cross my mind anymore. You see, suffering, it exposes the weakest parts of us. It reveals our inability to protect ourselves. It tears back the curtain of any notion that we had, that we were Superman or Superwoman.
and suffering even shapes our future. So it's only natural that we would want to avoid suffering. But the Bible, it actually invites us to something different, maybe even a little scary for us. You see, throughout this series, we've been looking at a letter that Peter wrote to five groups of Christian followers living in five regions throughout Asia Minor. And he called these faithful followers the elect exiles of the dispersion using this word for exiles, peripodemos, that's only found a few times in scripture. It's a word that's used to describe these people whose real home is in heaven, but who sojourn here on the earth. Every Christian is an exile. Every Christian belongs to one place, but at the same time is called and committed to the welfare of this place. And as we live as exiles, we find that we naturally live these countercultural lives that actually feel pretty unnatural to us. And so throughout this series, we've looked at the specific ways that we are called to be countercultural in the way we interact with the state and our government, in the way we interact with those to whom God has entrusted us with in our homes and our relationships, and within the body of Christ, the body of believers that we belong to right here at ECC. And I'm so grateful that we have this teaching team at ECC who has so faithfully looked into these really tough passages of scripture together and walked us through the letter all throughout this series. And today we get to close out this series by looking at another countercultural way of living. In fact, perhaps a countercultural way of living that sums up all the countercultural ways that came before it. It's this way of living that embraces suffering, not as an inconvenience, but as an opportunity for our faith to be developed, for us to stand in solidarity with our suffering savior and for us to usher in an understanding of a new kingdom. If you have your Bible with you today, turn with me to 1 Peter 4. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would invite you to download the YouVersion Bible app, which is this awesome tool that you can use all throughout the week to follow along in the scriptures with us. To these exiles in 1 Peter 4, Peter writes this. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. You see, the first thing that we see here is that suffering puts us in solidarity with Jesus. There are very few things that Jesus did that we can do well, aren't there? After all, we're completely unable to live a sinless life. We're rarely able to do some of the miracles that Jesus displayed, and we're not capable of knowing the thoughts and the hearts of others like Jesus so naturally did. But the one thing we can learn to do in order to stand in solidarity with Jesus is to learn how to suffer well like Jesus did. In the same way that Christ suffered in his human body, Peter invites us and invites his audience to stand in solidarity with Christ in the way we handle our suffering. Seeing our suffering as an important part of what it means to share in the body of Christ and in his kingdom, we are invited to set aside our desire towards sin and to put on our desire to embrace and live out the will of God in our everyday lives, in everything we do. This is obviously no easy task. 
And in fact, once when I was a teenager, I once wondered if it was possible as a believer in Christ and a desirer of Christ's kingdom to live a life free from sin for even one day. I, as you can imagine, didn't get very far. Yet this doesn't stop us from committing to the important work of living a transformed, renewed life. In fact, it commits us even more so to intentionally identifying the specific struggles we're pulled towards and to learning what it looks like for us to set those aside and to choose the hard work of being more passionate about the kingdom than we are about sin, more passionate about that which comes from God than we are about that which is pleasing in this present moment. You see, suffering also demonstrates the evidence of our transformation. It's the evidence that our faith has taken root and it's seen in our concern over sin and our desire to live a godly life and our passion to die daily to ourselves in order to live more fully for Christ and his kingdom. And when we face moments when we have to intentionally struggle against what our earthly bodies and minds feel called towards, we are gratefully reminded that we are in Christ. And therefore, at the same time that we struggle with sin, we deeply desire the kingdom of God to rule and reign in our lives. Peter goes on to address specifically what this group of exiles was facing, which was this culture in which to participate in the economic and social life of the places in which they lived was to participate in idol worship and in festivals that were ripe with what would constitute sin for them. And so he says, continuing on in 1 Peter verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, in passions, in drunkenness, in orgies, in drinking parties, and in lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Half these things that Peter lists are these things that were necessary in order to participate in the pagan religious festivals that were celebrated all throughout the region. But God's people are called to this new culture in order to demonstrate a new kingdom, a new faith, and a new way of living. You see, the final behavior that Paul lists here is idolatry, which the people of God have been told is unacceptable since the very beginning of their relationship with God. But Peter hammers this home even more, and he writes that it's detestable, using this word that means this behavior that is unacceptable according to tradition or custom, even if it's not the law of the land. You see, in other places, the people of God are told all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. In this age, we encounter plenty of things that are lawful, but aren't helpful for the people of God. Plenty of things that we legally have the right to do, but should choose not to do, because it cuts against what God has called us to. You see, whether we like it or not, we are shaped by all things. When we go to the mall or we turn on the TV or we talk with friends or we engage in business, the way we do it 
and our recognition that our participation and culture shapes us should make us even more aware of its influence in our lives and even more aware of the countercultural ways we have been called towards. It leads us to recognize that there are some things that we as followers of Jesus simply can't participate in. There are some things we should cautiously participate in. And there are some things that we can participate in as a means of bringing God's kingdom so long we can, as we can do it with integrity. And we have to learn how to practice discernment in this area. We have to learn how to turn to the scriptures together and to see what scripture says about things, even as innocuous or seemingly innocuous as the way we speak to one another. What I love about this section in this chapter is the way Peter starts it. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You see, so often I talk to people who feel trapped in sin because it's the path they've known and it's what they chose in the past. The attitude is less about apathy and more of helplessness. The idea that they can't escape who they once were, so they might as well just continue to give into it. But the gospel of Jesus always has really good news for us. And it's that the way we lived then doesn't have to be the way we live now. When we come to Christ, with all of our mess, he frees us from being enslaved to sin, which means that regardless of the mistakes we've made or the life we live, we no longer have to be controlled by it or to be helpless to its whims. We can choose a new path. Even in the middle of cultures that tempt and try us, we can choose a new path. We're no longer helpless. And this is why Peter ends this section by talking about the gospel being preached to those who spiritually were dead. That though judgment came to us because of what we do in our flesh, our hope and our redemption and our new lives come through the spirit we've been given through our belief in Christ Jesus and our desire to live fully according to his kingdom. And it's God's spirit that sustains us, that leads us and helps us to live into our new reality. The good news in all of this is we don't have to live this new life alone. You see, a few weeks ago, Pastor Dan opened to us Peter's words to husbands and wives. And he pointed out that Peter, in it, he ties the actions of the husbands to the ability of their prayers. He tells them to show honor to their wives so that their prayers may not be hindered. Peter, again, repeats something similar here. He writes to this whole community this, starting in verse 7. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong all glory and all dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, we're invited to practice self-control and an awareness of our thoughts and all of our desires so that we can pray fully and have the assurance that our prayers are being heard. But more than that, we're also invited to experience the fact that community can sustain us in the midst of suffering. We're invited to love each other 
And for those of us who have experienced what it's like to be loved so well, especially by our church families in the midst of our grief and suffering, is there anything better than knowing you're supported in your darkest moments? In addition, we're invited to use our God-given gifts to glorify the name of God and to care for those in our midst. Rather than get lackadaisical about the ways in which we live with each other as we're tempted and tried and, and as we experience suffering, we are invited to press even more into this community as we anticipate the moment in which all things will finally be made right. Dennis Edwards puts it this way. He says, during an American football game, the teams get a two minute warning at the end of each half of a play. A whistle sounds and it often seems that both teams put forth extra effort when the end of the half is near. The offense tries desperately to score points and the defense is especially cautious and not giving ground to their opposition. Years ago, while a friend and I were watching a team make a noticeable surge after the two minute warning, my friend asked, why don't they always play like there are two minutes left? If this is true for football, perhaps we too need to ask, how would I live if I knew I only had a short time left here on earth? Peter reminds his readers that the end was drawing near. And just like modern footballers, Peter's people are not to give up or relax in their efforts to live faithful lives. On the contrary, they are to keep the focus on their vertical relationship with God through prayer and also on their horizontal relationships through Christian community. You see, as we each figure out what it looks like to press more into Christ than in the temptation towards sin or being lackadaisical in our faith, we are invited to intentionally press into community both by serving, but also by being served by one another. Finally, we see this, that suffering isn't passive. In closing out this section, Peter writes this. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Peter reminds his readers and us that suffering isn't surprising because it is the natural outcome for people who have decided to live these Christ-centered, countercultural lives. If we live strange lives because we belong to a strange kingdom, we shouldn't be that surprised when we're treated strangely by a society that doesn't understand to whose kingdom we belong or why we belong there. You see, suffering is inevitable for every single person living. But Peter says here that there's a choice to be made. We can suffer for doing evil or we can suffer for doing good. We can suffer for doing what God's called us to, even if it sets us apart. Suffering because we are more aligned to God's kingdom than to the kingdom of this world. It is an expectation for those who follow Jesus. Of course, we'll be set apart. 
Of course, there'll be moments that we act strangely or we choose things that are countercultural. And of course, that will mean that at some points we feel alienated or we feel like ex exiles or we encounter questions or judgment. And this suffering, it's not purposeless. As we suffer for doing good, Peter offers several commands to God's people in this chapter and the next. He tells them, do not be surprised, rejoice. Let no one suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evildoer, or a meddler. Do not be ashamed. Glorify God. Commit yourself to a faithful creator. Shepherd the flock. Submit yourselves. Humble yourselves. Be alert. Be sober-minded and resist. Wrapped up in these commands are the promises that our suffering is not meaningless. In fact, that our suffering is purposeful and that in the middle of it, we are invited to glorify God and to rejoice that we bear God's name so obviously as to suffer for it. And at the same time, to entrust our souls to God as we do good. In this, we follow the example of Jesus who suffered not for doing sin or doing evil, but for being righteous. He fulfilled the words of the prophet Isaiah who wrote that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is our example and our hope. The hope that we have been and we will be redeemed from every painful moment as we are ushered into the new kingdom. When I was in high school, I went to a book tour for this book called Drops Like Stars, which is this book that's all about what we do in the aftermath of suffering. And at the tour, the author handed out these bars of soap and he told the story of this friend of his that's able to look at soap and to carve something beautiful out of it, to see what looks useless to others and to create something artistic and meaningful. And then he told us, that whenever he speaks to his counselor and he talks about suffering or mistakes or past embarrassments, and he uses words like being a mistake or a failure or useless, the counselor reaches into his drawer and he pulls out a plaque that says in Hebrew, the God who wastes nothing. You see our suffering and our failures, they have far reaching purposes in them God shows us our solidarity with the Savior who also suffered. He pushes us into our need for deep abiding community that suffers alongside us. And he develops us as kingdom bearers, as people who are proud to bear the name of Christ, no matter the consequences. Our invitation to embrace suffering, it is so countercultural, but it's integral to us becoming the people that God has always intended for us to be. These people who are set apart, but we know this isn't always easy. So we wanna invite you to press even more into community in this, as we learn how to be exiles together. And I wanna invite you as we head towards Confirmation Sunday next week to continue to read in First Peter with us, this book that's written to people who are experiencing life as exiles in the exact place they live, who know so much what it's like to be in many of the same circumstances as us and worse. And we want to invite you to receive prayer and care as we walk through these roads together. Our care pastor, Mike Lindsay, would love to pray with you this morning and all throughout the week. And he would love to walk with you in whatever form suffering looks like for you. 
Just go to emmanuel.church/next to submit a prayer request. You see, God wastes nothing. And in our suffering, we're invited to become like him and to bear his name to a community that so desperately needs to see the option to join another kingdom. Let's pray. God, thank you for the privilege of bearing your name. God, thank you that you invite us to live these countercultural lives for the sake of who you are. God, and that as we do that, you develop us more and more into who you're calling us to be. And God, even though our countercultural lives may look strange, they're so attractive to a world that needs to see you. God, and so help us to be able to live lives that are countercultural. Help us to be able to embrace what it looks like to suffer as a means of experiencing your grace and your kingdom. And God, walk with us through these complicated paths. In name we pray, amen.